we had actually a military class and teach you something about know, how to put on a gas mask to, well, how an American military unit would be attacking you and how that would be different from how British military unit would be attacking you. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Vadim was at school in Moscow during the 1970s and 80s. He attended an advanced English studies school where all subjects were taught, however the focus was on English. He provides us with insights into the setup of Soviet education as well as the school life, teaching methods and pop culture. We hear how the British newspaper Morning Star was a key teaching aid for Soviet English students. Now, I know some of you skip this bit, but if you want to continue hearing these Cold War stories, I'm asking listeners to pledge a monthly donation of around $4, £3 or €3 Euros a month to help keep the podcast on the air. Larger amounts are always welcome too. If you donate monthly via Patreon, then you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. Peter Ryan is the interviewer today, and I am delighted to welcome Vadim to our Cold War conversation. Vadim, maybe as a starting point, obviously Moscow is today and, and always has been a vibrant international city. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like in Moscow in the 70s and 80s from the standpoint of the English language scene? Was there much of an English language scene? Uh, was English readily available as a language of communication or as a language of media? Uh, a very interesting question, Peter, because uh, there are different viewpoints on that, whether you were a school kid like like me back then, or a grown-up who kind of was looking to use English uh, in, in their job. Again, my perspective was uh, still a kid, so I went to school at the age of seven in 1975 and spent 10 years there. Uh, and... Uh, well, I can probably talk about the the system of schooling uh, a little more as 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 we move move ahead. But um, the idea is that there were different type of of uh, schools. Uh, some were uh, just sort of regular schools where kids would have uh, maybe one or two classes of English per week, and obviously <laughs> uh, they were not really picking much much speaking or writing skills during those couple hours. Uh, I was sort of fortunate because my, my parents put me in a school that uh, was sort of designated as advanced English studies school. So we actually had it uh, starting at the age of eight, which was in the second grade, uh, unlike others who started like two or three years later. And we had, uh, well, three, four hours of English classes, solid English classes, pretty much from the age of eight. Again, I uh, can't say that uh, this was really something that we were looking towards every every day or every, every week. Uh, like most other subjects in school, uh, Every, they were sort of forced on us as part of a curriculum. And uh, <laughs> I keep thinking of um, a, a Monty Python sketch uh, uh, from one of their movies uh, where John Cleese was actually doing a, a sex education class in one, was it like a Catholic school or a Protestant school uh, with, with a live demo. And, and the kids were all extremely bored just, just because that was yet another school subject. So that was sort of the mindset of, um, I would say, a lot of kids, even in my sort of advanced English 
uh, school because uh, parents were making the decisions, not the kids themselves. I was sort of dis- <laughs> pushed to be a, a a good performing student <laughs> by my parents, so well, I had to kind of excel in everything based on their <laughs> viewpoints. And uh, eventually, yeah, I had to put put all the time in, in my homework, including obviously English as well. So, and and ended up well do it pretty pretty well but uh some other kids um well not that much and interestingly well decades ago later we had uh like a school reunion and uh talking to the former classmates of mine i realized that barely 10 percent, even even maybe less than that actually had used english after finishing school had any jobs or or well one girl actually married a foreigner, quote unquote. I don't even know if he was American, British, or just European, but at least for her, that came in handy. Sure, yeah. Well, but it's interesting, though, Vadim, in the sense that it you were given the opportunity, or students in the Soviet Union were given the opportunity to learn English, even as you say, it might have been starting at nine or 10 years old and a couple of hours a week. But it's certainly more exposure than, say, students like myself had to Russian in Canada, or I suspect it was the same across uh, across the West. Yeah, that's that's right. And uh, uh, again, English was probably the more popular one, but uh, some schools were doing that with German, some with French. Uh, well, there was probably even like one or two schools in Moscow where kids were doing Chinese back then. Mm-hmm. But, uh, well, they or actually their parents had to be, well, especially motivated to put their kids through all the tortures of learning, well, such a difficult language. But it's, it's interesting, though, Vadim, when you think about it, the, the quality of the language instruction, we can hear it just from your English, was obviously very, very strong. And I can tell you as well, I've met many people from the former Soviet Union that speak French impeccably. It's quite, I think, uh, a testament to the efforts that the education system made to try and make sure Occidental languages were given priority. That's partially true, because, well, any foreign language would uh, degrade very quick, uh, if if it's not used in in kind of real life in in, in a job mm-hmm. or or in actual live interactions, and I was fortunate later through my career to continue uh, practicing both well, at the university and 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 then practicing that in real life in real job, and I barely had a job where I did not need it. That, that that's that's kind of it worked out for me. So yes, the foundation was was decent, but uh, again. You, you really had to have a need for that. But uh, for the grown-ups, well, back then and even later, it was really kind of a, a, a doubtful motivation to, to put many hours in learning a language they may not even need. Well, Iron Curtain still remained a strong social factor, uh, kind of uh, focusing people on what's here, sort of, Behind that Iron Curtain, which is the culture and social connections and everything that was happening in Russia, and and, and even if you look uh, at the at the current days, uh, kind of the the, uh, the well the first decades of the twenty first century, um, language is still a major social barrier. I mean, the, the Iron Curtain as we knew it from the seventies, eighties, and nineties is gone, but socially, while well, the language barrier for a majority of the population in Russia is still a major factor. Well, that's interesting. And when we're talking a little bit about language and language instruction and exposure, one of the big elements in terms of how somebody can take up language, and I'm sure it was the same case in the Soviet Union during the 70s and 80s, pop culture has a major impact on this. From the perspective of living in Moscow at the time, what would have been the primary pop culture elements that would have incorporated English into what you would have been exposed to back then? Oh, that you're right, Peter. Yeah. Culture, pop culture, and especially imported pop culture is a major factor. But uh, back then, most uh, sort of pop culture elements were heavily curated. 
and and anything that was allowed sort of inter Russia had to be say politically correct and aligned or at least not contradicting what uh, the Soviet leaders back then were promoting or telling their people uh, so there were well, obviously kind of, uh, most of Western music, English language or in other languages as well, was uh, under heavy control. I even remember that um, I once saw uh, like a typewriter written list of uh, rock groups and singers who were sort of discouraged, quote-unquote, from uh, being played in public performances, meaning, meaning like in clubs and discos. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, under very weird pretexts, uh, obviously... Uh, well, groups like ACDC or Kiss were, <laughs> uh, were on that list be- just because the, the, the old communist leaders were not really getting the, the metal or hard rock in, in, at all. But uh, some others actually got on that list as well. Uh, I think Pink Floyd got, got on it for, for, I think, condemning Russian invasion in Afghanistan, and they were really kind of got on that blacklist. Guys like like Julio Iglesias, who was doing nothing but live songs, love songs, was on that list for I think due to some error, but at least he got, a, or or his last name was mixed with someone else. But yeah, he, he was on that list as well. So that's crazy. That that was kind of uh, weird. Um, some actually some uh, performers, sorry, performers were. Uh, on the white list, so to say, um, uh, and uh, I think the the, the star of uh, Dean Reed, the the well, the American singer who uh, well originally was designated as a country style singer, but then he was kind of a major political voice of uh, communism overall. At least that's how he was pitched to the Russian audience. He was a very iconic figure, or made an iconic figure because. Uh, Obviously, his his overall stance and appearance looked uh, he looked very positive, and uh, uh, generally uh, his 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 sort of uh, open nature, communicating, being he generally projected a a very positive impression, and and that's why all the communist leaders really loved him for. Uh, for the opportunity to say, yeah, he's a real American, yeah, he, he holds an American passport, but he loves Soviet Union, he loves communism, so uh, that sort of justifies pretty much everything we do here. So he was performing a lot across the the country. I think he was even taken to this uh, construction site of the Baikal-Amu Railway, like a major infrastructure mm-hmm. project that the Soviet Union was investing into back then, uh, so I remember some pictures in in in, in, the, in the Pravda newspaper with Did Reed performing on top of a railway car to the workers busy with, with this railroad construction. So yeah. that's really incredible, Vadim. Uh, and you know, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, some of the bands on the blacklist: ACDC, Pink Floyd, Kiss. I'll say right now, those are three of my favorite bands, so I think I probably would have had a lot of difficulty visiting the Soviet Union back then. But, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring Dean Reed up because uh, there almost seems to have been a bit of a renaissance in in interest around Dean Reed. Uh, If you find a lot of his videos on YouTube, a number of books have been written about him. I'm curious from what you remember after he passed away in 1986, was he still remembered as fondly as he was perhaps prior to that? It's hard to say, because I was going through some really kind of fast-moving years myself, and my personal interests were shifting. Again, I wasn't really kind of a, a big fan of Dean Reed per se. So he was there, he was performing, he was sort of part of the culture scenery. But again, the seal of approval from the communist leaders kind of made me and a lot of other people doubt if that was really authentic. So, right. so they were pushing him too hard. <laughs> that, that's, that's my point. 
Well, that that's interesting though. But let me ask you: in terms of some of the bands that perhaps were not as as favored by the government, you know, going back, ACDC, Kiss, yeah. Pink Floyd, or other ones, what did young people like listening to? What would your peers uh, and yourself have enjoyed listening to in terms of Western bands that, that perhaps their music made it through in some way, shape, or form? What would have been some of the more popular groups? Yeah, well, obviously, kind of, we were all into music back back then when we were just early teenagers and. <sighs> Uh, as a backdrop we, we all were really kind of dreaming of getting our own tape player and again obviously mm-hmm. it was all based on <laughs> tape based and uh, actually the guys who had imported double cassette players or actually kind of recorder slash player they were really kind of uh, at the, <laughs> the most favorite friends of everyone because they could help kind of copy tapes and <laughs> for everyone else so yeah uh we were exchanging tapes, sharing records, and uh, um, most of that was, again, as I said, on tapes. And uh, you'd probably be looking at groups like you know, Space or Doors, for that matter. But again, <laughs> I hardly remember any names because I was uh, really coming from sort of a, a disadvantaged family to think of because uh, I was really the last one in my class of 38 people kids uh, to get a, a, a tape player <laughs> so <laughs> that was really kind of a major major pain uh, of my childhood yeah everyone was ha- had one and I didn't interestingly some uh, some records were actually released on vinyl uh, by the official state-owned Melodia Publishing House, and actually, remember, I had a a, 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 well, obviously, a Beatles and a Doors uh, vinyl discs, and maybe a few others. So, so I had this, this uh, well, I wanted to say forty-five uh, uh, RPM <laughs> vinyl player, except that it was a thirty-three and one third. That was the standard. Kind of a more more used uh, across Russia back then, but yeah, um, I, I, I had a few of those, um, and and yeah, obviously, kind of there were other occasional opportunities to kind of re- immerse into kind of a, a, the pop culture that was coming out of the country. Obviously, the Eastern Bloc singers and and groups were. Well, reasonably popular, or, or kind of made popular for the lack of others, and uh, uh, there were even some TV uh, programs uh, like the, the the melodies of rhymes of foreign music. That that was, I think, how it was called, and that was like a, a an annual program running deep into the, the night uh, on December thirty first. So you. You would really have to stay up till about three or four a.m. in the morning, and, and when this program would start, and uh, and the real uh, excitement would be towards the end of it, more like I don't know five or six a.m. when they finally let in some uh, Western European or American groups to play there. So, uh, so that that was exciting. Oh, and by the way, uh, well, AM radio, well was still AM, not FM back then most of the time. But um... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, despite all the attempts to to hush down the uh, the, the foreign stations, uh, there were actually some 
programs, news, culture, and music actually that were coming on on BBC, on Radio Europe, Radio Free Europe, and even Voice of America. I occasionally, kind of was uh, was coming through to those who had those AM radios. Mm-hmm. And fortunate that those were not the days of the well, 1940s and 1950s when uh, well, you were not supposed to own a, a radio at all. Uh, but but uh, yeah, in the 70s, 80s, uh, uh, yeah, that was something you could buy uh, at an electronics store. Although they were not really always available there, you really had to line up like half a day uh, for half a day to to buy one but yeah well my my parents actually got a an am radio which i occasionally used to tune into those stations until they really had to hop to a new frequency every i don't know 20 30 minutes just to avoid being kind of hushed down got it so, Vadim, it's interesting you mentioned the, the the Beatles records. I'd heard from somebody that one of the you know there's that famous co- compilation, the two compilation albums from the Beatles, the Red compilation, which is their songs from '62 to '66, and then uh, the Blue one, which goes from 1967 to 1970. And somebody told me that there was an actual pressing done for the East Block on the Blue one that deliberately omitted the song "Revolution." I don't know if you knew was true or not but uh it, quite a fascinating story just to get the just to be able to sell the record in the soviet union they had to take that one song out you know that is very feasible um except that i think it wasn't their calling it was still the um the curation of the material that was happening at, at when, when they, they really ran the printing or actually prepared the, the this disc for release in russia uh uh, I, I think the, the the Communist Party curators had really kind of to strike out certain songs. I don't I don't think the Beatles themselves did that. No, no, I, I would imagine not. Well, let's shift away from music for a second. I'd be really interested in terms of the printed word and what type of access did you, as a young Muscovite, have to perhaps English language books or magazines, whether they were printed within the Soviet Union or perhaps even imported from the West? Mm. Well, again, locally printed media was definitely kind of much easier to get access to. And... uh, um, even even for the uh, for the English classes at school, our teachers occasionally, or actually frequently, recommended. I think Moscow News was a, a locally published uh, newspaper in English. I think it was uh, not not necessarily kind of a, a strong on propaganda, but at least uh, what they did, they, they tried to provide some sort of balanced view to those reading in English, obviously targeting the Western audience, but it was still published in Moscow and available in English and a few other languages uh, through the newsstands. So, uh, and, and obviously kind of written by uh, Russian English speakers, not, well, very few native English speakers, I think, were part of the, of the editorial board, but uh, they provided still decent level of uh, Kind of <laughs> articles in terms of the again training your 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 English skills. Uh, in parallel, uh, Morning Star, famous communist British newspaper, was uh, uh, fairly easy to be found across the newsstands, and obviously kind of fully imported and written by the actual English speakers. <laughs> Uh, that was uh, even a better choice, but uh, by our English teachers uh, back at school. Uh, well, and and not because of the communist propaganda in it, just because uh, again, purely for the pleasure of exercising your English. I had heard that the Soviet Union was the largest single buyer of the Morning Star newspaper. I totally believe that because uh, it was really widely available. Well, I mean, not not every day I checked the newsstand, but at least uh, kind of once a week or twice a week, you could actually get a, a new issue. And it wasn't really prohibitively expensive. I mean, slightly more expensive than the Russian Pravda newspaper, but still kind of affordable, at least, well, 
you could save your lunch money and, and buy one with not, not, not big trouble. But then again, you would be reusing that for another month as part of your English classes and exercises. Sure. But you know, when when you think about when you think about perhaps even going beyond the newspapers, I'm I'm coming to mind some of the big authors from the 1970s and 80s as an example. Stephen King, I remember when I was growing up, was massive. Would you have been able to get any of perhaps his books in English or any other offer? I say in the, the early 90s, definitely. But um, again, th- there were different channels. First of all. Um, Part of the school curriculum, we were really encouraged to read books by like Jack London, Mark Twain, so the classic English-American literature, 18th, 19th century. And, and a lot of that was actually published uh, in Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Russia, in English. So yeah, you could actually go, go and get, get, get one in, 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 in the bookstore. Some, uh, some other... English literature, especially kind of classic British literature, was uh, coming through sort of as as, a, as an important imported titles. Uh, I, th- I think Penguin Publishing House was really big uh, on that, and a lot of their books were easy to be found in 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 Moscow, both new and and used ones. Usually, kind of a paperbacks of. of different level but again typically those be 18 19th century books barely anything hardly hardly anything from the 20th century but still still possibly maybe if you really wanted to find it you you could uh, second hand market was already sort of legally available uh, and, and, and or semi legally available if you really were carrying for any of those titles uh, a few years later, when I was already at the uh, first year at the university, and again, uh, well, my my university path was uh, it was called the the Department of uh, kind of International Affairs. So I was really kind of studying international banking and finance, I was supposed to. Uh, so we had advanced lingu- English studies there as well, and. Uh, Obviously, showing a student ID of, of that university allowed me to uh, sign into the what's called the, the Foreign Literature Library in Moscow. Uh, so it was sort of available for most, but you really had to have you know, reasons just to, to sign into the library. So if, if, re- if you're really doing other work or, or classes unrelated to foreign languages, they would probably decline access to that. But I was I was lucky to be on that sort of again kind of white list, so to say. So when when we think about the the nineteen seventies and the eighties, obviously one of the biggest elements around English language culture, popular culture that comes to mind would be cinema and television. And I think about Perhaps TV shows like The Dukes of Hazard. I think about movies like Back to the Future, Star Wars. Did you have access to any of these in English in Moscow at the time? Well, I think that that sort of came in much later. The, uh, we're already talking about um, year eighty-five to ninety, sort of. I actually remember uh, skipping few classes at my university because there was um, a, a kind of a trade show happening not too far from kind of where my, my, my university was, which was um, actually a, some sort of not a, a trade show sponsored by U.S. information agency. So what they did was they brought in sort of a display of American culture, technology, and uh, uh, generally kind of the spirit of America, to a, a very popular back then uh, ex- exhibition, which really took several hours really to get in. And that's why I had to skip those classes. But uh, eventually I did. And uh, and that was, uh, I think, very shortly after Back to the Future was released, at least the first of the three. And and they were running that on a small TV somewhere at one of the booths out there. Uh, kind mm-hmm. of like a, 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 a three-minute loop or something. And that was, that was kind of a, a shock to me. 
And a few years earlier, I remember actually seeing a piece of Star Wars movie in uh, one of the... Uh, I can't remember some, what sort of event that was. But yeah, I, I definitely remember couple episodes there and I thought oh wow I should definitely get to see the whole movie at some point <laughs> and it took actually decades till till I had the chance to um, none of the TV shows actually kind of are, were available but um, I remember a movie I think it was called Tutsi in in, in Russian uh, a lot of American movies, or I think The Flight of Condor was some other one. I remember actually going to the regular to a regular cinema and 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 see. And see. Actually, um, together with a couple of my best school buddies, we occasionally took sort of trips around Moscow to see American movies, but which were again released on a on a small scale and you probably had to ride on, on a subway across the entire city to another movie theater which was running certain American movie that, that week. So that was still possible, available, exciting, definitely so. Uh, although uh, I understand that some scenes uh, especially erotic scenes from some of the movies were really going to cut out to please the, the, the curators. Got it. Got it. Well, interestingly enough, why don't we flip back a little bit to the education and the education that perhaps you experienced or that other students in Moscow at the time would have been undergoing. From the standpoint of signing up for English classes or getting involved in extracurricular English activities, would that have been seen as suspicious by the authorities at the time? Well, actually, no. Uh, not really. Uh, because I think a few decades before that, uh, that probably would have been suspicious. But uh, uh, in in the 70s and especially 80s, not, not anymore. But again, you had to understand why anyone would be doing that. So for the kids like me, it was uh, primarily our parents' drive to put us in a school that was doing those extra English classes. And since that was, again, an official government school reporting to the Department of Education of the Soviet Union, I mean, there was nothing suspicious about that. <clears throat> anyone taking... And I'm talking about the grown-ups, uh, the adults who were taking, I don't know, after-work English classes actually paid for that. That was, in most cases, either required by their job, or at least they could do there and still um, kind of explain why they, they had a strong motivation to do that. Like they were doing some science research or, or whatever that justified that. So that, that actually wasn't much of a problem. So if we're thinking if we're thinking a little bit about the the chance to learn English and to speak English obviously you had some really good instructors and you had exposure to some printed materials as well as some movies did you ever get a chance to meet native English speakers during your time growing up in Moscow well, actually, yes, and uh, uh, I mean, this wasn't really a regular event, but there were a few episodes I can I can still remember. Probably the earliest one happened when I was barely eight or nine, and uh, my mom and I somehow ended uh, really in the downtown of Moscow, in the vicinity of a Metropole Hotel, which was uh, even back then was really kind of a posh international hotel for really kind of major foreign visitors, and there was like a small park outside with like a water feature and and and. Uh, and, and some rest area there where oh, kind of my mom just landed to give some rest to her feet <laughs> and I as a kid was just running around and uh, there was a gentleman and again I wouldn't remember which country he came uh, but uh, at least after kind of a few rounds around that water feature I ended up exchanging a few sentences with that gentleman and then reporting back to my mom and then making another round and and, and a few more sentences. So all in all, that was, uh, I would say, fairly un, 
well, <laughs> uncontrolled interaction. I mean, there was no KGB officers lurking in the, in the bushes nearby, and uh, my English was barely sufficient to say a few words. I mean, I, I just started learning it, and only I could I could only say my name and where I live, and sort of and a few other basic things. But um, I kind of still remember that that interaction. Was there any uh, any any sense about what the gentleman was doing in town, or what perhaps his 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 uh, business was in Moscow at the time? Uh, again, my <laughs> my English was barely sufficient to understand uh, him at all, and not not to probe those in depth questions. I was still uh, eight or nine, and I was excited already to be chatting with a real foreigner. <laughs> Even if we were talking about, well, I live in Moscow and my name is Vadim and uh, uh, I live nearby and, and everything. I wasn't really asking much. He was kind of doing you know, the questioning there. But, uh, I know, to me, he could have been uh, one of the just tourists coming to yeah. see to see the air the, the Moscow the, the country and and the city uh, I occasionally could, could spot a few other similar tourists kind of in the same area I mean that was really kind of the downtown next to the Bolshoi theater and crambling just around the corner so it was really kind of a, a, a hot spot in that sense uh, interestingly back in in my school um, we were sort of designated. I mean, our school with with advanced English studies was sort of a designated uh, as, a, as, a, as a model school in a sense to uh, where they would be bringing the teams of uh, school kids and usually usually kids, yeah, school kids from Europe or US. And I remember we had visitors from UK, from US, from Netherlands. Uh, Here's an interesting story. Our school was uh, originally designed uh, as a not just an advanced English language studies school, but uh, probably decades before that, uh, uh, the kids were also supposed to study other subjects like chemistry or physics or history in English. So it wasn't just the English, English, but also English chemistry or, uh, well, probably even physical education in English. I don't know. Uh, but uh, apparently they had problems sourcing teachers that could do both, I mean, deliver physics or literature and, and speak English. Uh, so it eventually kind of went down to just English classes. But uh, officially it was still known as the school where they study multiple subjects in English and all the kind of nameplates and uh, uh, we had on all the classes and rooms were in English as well. So we actually had a, a gym which said in English, which which had a kind of a, a, a word gym on it, G Y M, and not 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 kind of a sports hall in Russian. And we had a physics class and had all other classes also labeled in English. And uh, we had actually a military class and uh, kind of military education or military basic military training was part of the regular, uh, I would say, kind of mid to high school agenda where once a week they would teach you something about uh, I don't know, how to put on a gas mask to, well, how a, well, kind of a, say, an American military unit would be attacking you and how that would be different from how British military unit would be attacking you. I mean, all those weird topics. But uh, that room had that uh, well, military room label on the door. Uh, and eventually, uh, they started covering that with, with a piece of paper uh, on on the days when those foreign visitors were coming in, and that's how we knew. Okay, we're probably going to miss a class or two because they would just pull us out of the class to chat with these well, other kids from from say London, and we were really excited. Uh, but again, that was already um, sort of mid-school, high-school years, which still 
made us feel happy when we could skip a test by just just chatting to <laughs> to those visitors. <laughs> oh, that's that's classic. Well, Vadim, tell me how was the instruction in English undertaken at the schools that you attended? Were there any particular ways that they not just taught you the language, but they, they made you fluent? You've, you've alluded to the fact that uh, you were effectively immersed in different subjects, but were there ways of making it interesting and, and challenging the students to not just have a functional element of the language, but also to become more fluent by their own volition? Uh, unfortunately, I wouldn't say that was the case. Well, obviously, the, the story about all other subjects to be taught in English, that kind of started and ended before I actually went to school. So, uh, and uh, with just English language classes, a lot of time was spent on teaching grammar and rules and other boring topics, probably taking away the time from live conversations. So I had really to study all those past perfect continuous versus present perfect continuous and, and draw all kinds of tables and how uh, those verbs would differ depending on, on this time. Uh, but um, we still had some, uh, some, some spoken practice with the teachers between each other. But again, another big chunk of effort went into memorizing uh, what was called topics, which essentially meant you'd be learning literally by heart anywhere from like two to three, four, five, six paragraphs of material. And gosh, I still remember a few of those uh, talking about uh, either the city of London or talking about the... Uh, Oh, Mark Twain's literature. Uh, and eventually they would be using that on tests where the kids would really be out there speaking in memorized sentences without really even understanding <laughs> what they were talking about. And that was considered to be worthwhile investment of, of efforts. So um, I would say it wasn't as much fun, uh, although possibly still still useful. I would say so. And, and tell me, Vadim, what, to what extent did you find that the, the instructors were fluent in English themselves? To, what level would you have accorded the instructors in terms of what they were able to do in regards to not just teaching English, but actually interacting in it? Uh, interestingly, I don't, didn't have a scale to measure their accents or, or their mastery of the language back then. Uh, to me, they were really much better <laughs> than, than myself, and that was sufficient to really get us picking whatever they could share with us. I would say uh, not all of them were equally good, but again, our school was probably one of the fortunate ones, and uh, at least several of the teachers that uh, we were in class with uh, had been on some sort of teaching exchange programs uh, in, in, in UK, I believe. So at least they would uh, at least <laughs> know where their own position was in terms of the, the English language accents and skills. Uh, some were really kind of doing just okay, but um, it was really uh, the... the <laughs> The choice we could we could make, like I'll go with this teacher versus I go with that other teacher, because um, it was all kind of pre-planned. And uh, once you are in in our school, or once you were in our school or any other school, you really had your curriculum pretty much scheduled out for the rest of the term and uh, the full year, meaning that uh, the the planning unit was not an individually personalized uh, curriculum for each of the students or kids. It was, again, for the entire class of maybe 30, 35 kids. Mm -hmm. So you'd go into the class, you'd go out, you know, out of the class just because you were designated to be that school by your parents. And uh, uh, and that's, that's the schedule for today. Uh, not much choice. 
Cool. So to what extent did ideology pervade instruction in English? Uh, were there elements of the Soviet, uh, perhaps, propaganda or the, the policy direction that you had discussed in the classes, uh, whether it was subtly or directly? It's a very interesting question, but no, not really. I mean, the English classes were mostly focusing on on just just the skills and 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 learning a few useless material uh, topics. But uh, the the propaganda itself was not really there. You really had to dig deeper and see that okay, most of the uh, reading material, even in English, comes from the 18th and 19th century, and uh, well, and say, and, and the Uncle Tom's cabbing was probably the most uh, politically biased uh, material because that depicted the slavery, and uh, we in, in the Soviet Union were so heavily against slavery for equal rights of all the people. Uh, I think that that that's probably the the, the most uh, obvious case, but uh, not much in the in the other day to day classes per se. There was enough, uh, let's say, communist and political propaganda uh, out, kind of outside the, of the classes the, themselves, like uh, well, the spirit of collectivism was something you would be seeing from the very first year in the primary school. Everyone was supposed to be part of a small team or small group uh, where well, you had your own responsibilities. You were really modeling yourself by the heroes of, well, they were still called pioneers, sort of modeled by the uh, by the scouts, I, I guess, in the US. Uh, so they were Kind of an organization like the pioneers, which really kind of promoted both the the ability to <laughs> find your way in the forest or, or, or set up a fire uh, to have to cook some food, but also to really help uh, the elderly and uh, and do other good for the sake of your of, of the communist party and your other international friends <laughs> uh, so we we were all part of that uh, and and uh, later as uh, as we were then promoted to the Komsomol members which is already sort of a a an excellent step in, in, in the youth organizational hierarchy. There was still kind of a communist party led organization, but again for the for the for the teenagers and young adults. Uh, there were a lot of events, meetings and uh, other types of propaganda coming through those channels. But again, hardly anyone knew any better. So it was still fairly well, neutrally accepted, like, yeah, it's part of life. I'm not going to protest against it. I'm just just stick with 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 uh, whatever everyone else is doing. At least that was sort of the the mentality back then. So, Vadim, final question. And by the way, thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion thus far, and really appreciate your time. I'd be really interested to find out if by what you observed, there was any shift in how English was taught or the exposure to English after Glasnost and Perestroika kicked off all the way up through to the fall of communism? Well, I think one of the major shifts that happened uh, was due to the fall of that Iron Curtain when uh, well, the citizens of the Soviet Union and now Russia and now finally discover themselves still to be part of the bigger world. And that revolution pushed a lot of enthusiasm into learning foreign languages, primar primarily English, of course, just to maintain cultural and social connections. So that, that was a major push, which, again, got reflected in in many of the, say, commercially available English language studies schools. Um, I'm not sure about the, the, the primary education. That yeah, There are still schools that uh, were not 
putting much time and effort into specifically the English language curriculum. Some were doing that uh, kind of a little more. Some were saying, yeah, we're now going to offer multiple languages because well, the whole world is, is your, at your fingertips. Uh, but yes, there, um, there were much more opportunities and uh, a lot more motivation to go after those opportunities. Uh, so that, I think, was, was a major shift. Until probably, well, let's say, 10 years ago when, well, U.S. was declared the major enemy of Russia again, <laughs> and 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 the Iron Curtain started sort of coming back. Got it. Well, look, thank you so much, Vadim, and thanks for taking part in Cold War conversations. And we have further photos, videos, and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this podcast would not exist without our generous Patreons, and I would like to especially thank our Politburo level members who contribute a generous 30 US dollars a month each to help keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.